2, verse 35, which leaves the rest of the chapter and part of chapter 12 for next week. So we will have one more Thursday night session. Shall we begin with prayer? Our gracious God and Father, you who have decreed from before the foundation of the earth all that we are reading and have inspired your servant Daniel to record it for our understanding and for our redemption. Yes, we acknowledge that this passage brings us to Christ and to his kingdom And we are eternally grateful to you for this wonderful saving message. The grace that has come from heaven where you have spoken, where your son has taken his seat at your right hand as the King of kings and Lord of lords. We bow before you with adoration, with affection, and with a desire to be your humble and obedient servants. And so, O Lord, encourage us as we look at this very wonderfully detailed prophecy, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Daniel 11, we are focusing on the intertestamental period. The era between the Old Testament and the New Testament between Malachi and Matthew, the era which brings the clash of Greece with Persia, the breakup of the empire of Alexander the Great, the conflict among his generals, culminating in more than a century-long antipathy between Syro-Mesopotamia and Egypt. And sandwiched in this crossfire, Israel-Palestine, the land of the people of God, trampled by the marching and counter-marching armies of Ptolemies and Seleucids, each vying to control Palestine as a buffer state against the other. Daniel 11 is the remnant of the third monarchy of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2 and Daniel's vision in Daniel 7. It is a downward telescoping focus clarifying the rise of the Bronze Empire, leopard-like, with its prominent horn dominating the whole earth, until that horn is prematurely broken into the four points of the compass. The 11th chapter of Daniel details in meticulous fashion the remnant of Alexander's far-flung Hellenistic empire. But if the third monarchy has appeared, can the fourth monarchy be far behind? And if the fourth monarchy is imminent, is not the fifth monarchy nigh at hand? 
as this decline of the third monarchy spirals down to internecine strife between Egypt and Syria, what remains? What is the benefit to the people of God, to the divine plan of God, to the eternal decree of God? If the world is being prepared by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God for the advent of the fifth monarchy, how is it being accomplished? How do we keep our eyes on the forest without getting lost in the trees? Well then, what does Alexander's Hellenism bring? It brings a language, a language which will be used throughout the civilized world from Greece to Egypt to Syria to Mesopotamia, even to Rome. And that language, the Greek tongue of the Greek empire, the third monarchy, will be the vehicle by which the gospel of the fifth monarchy is spread over the world in the era of the fourth monarchy. In every place where Greek is read, from Alexandria, Egypt, to Antioch of Syria, to the cities of the Ionian League in Asia Minor, to European Thessalonica, to the ecumenical port city of Corinth, to the catacombs of Rome. In every Greek reading place, the Greek New Testament will be read. And the story of God the Father's love of sinners, even Greek-speaking sinners, and the story of God the Son's grace in saving sinners, even Greek-speaking sinners, and the story of God the Holy Spirit's transforming power in regenerating sinners, even Greek-speaking sinners. This life-changing message will be read, preached, embraced, believed in Persian regions, Greek regions, Egyptian regions, Syrian regions, even Roman regions. A common tongue spreads over the Hellenistic world after Alexander's conquests, a common language which will be the divine linguistic instrument for spreading the gospel to Jew and Greek alike, the gospel of the fifth monarchy, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of a kingdom which will never be destroyed, the gospel of the dominion of one whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, an eschatological kingdom which will never pass away eternal in the heavens. Daniel chapter 11, verse 13. The defeat of Antiochus III by Ptolemy IV at Raphia in 217 B.C. 
at the close of the fourth Syrian war restores the status quo ante. Egypt controls Palestine. Antiochus III now campaigns in the east following his defeat at Raphia, turning his attention to Parthia, Armenia, Bactria. Subduing these regions earns him the title Megas in Greek, the Great, a title used by the Persian kings long before him, and, of course, a title used by Alexander Megas, Alexander the Great. Verse 13, for the king of the north will again rise, raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much Equipment. If you will notice from your first map, the king of the north is Antiochus III once again, who will raise a greater multitude than the former, that is, a greater army than he had when he was defeated at Raphia in 217, after an interval of years. That is, after the 14 to 15 years since the end of the Fourth Syrian War, 217 down to 202 B.C. He will raise an army to press on Egypt and the Ptolemies. But why does he wait until 202 B.C.? Because Ptolemy IV, his former nemesis, dies in 204 B.C. And so Antiochus III will resume his attempt to conquer Egypt following the death of Ptolemy IV, who had withstood him at Raphia some 15 years before. Verse 14. Now, in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Now, obviously, since Ptolemy IV is dead by the time uh, this verse unfolds, the king of the south here is the successor to Ptolemy IV. He is Ptolemy V Epiphanes, who reigned over Egypt from 203 to 181 B.C. Now, he's called Epiphanes because he was dubbed, along with his wife Cleopatra I, a god manifest. The two of them were declared gods manifest, after they recaptured Upper Egypt, which means Egypt down towards the Sudanese border in 191 or 190 B.C., recaptured that portion of Egypt which the Nubians or the Kushites or the Sudanese forces had held since they had captured it in 207 or 205 B.C., 
You can go back to look at our comment on verse 12 from last week's handout, the Daniel handout number four. So Upper Egypt had belonged to the Nubians or to the Sudanese for the last 20 years of Ptolemy IV's reign. But Ptolemy V and his wife reverse that approximately 13 years after he takes the throne. Well, who are the many who will rise up? Now, obviously, those who are rising up here in verse 14 are going to come against the king of the south. So this is referring to Antiochus III and his allies. Now, one of his most notable allies in this incursion into Egypt in 202 was Philip V of Macedonia, king of Macedonia, who also took the name of Alexander's uh, famous father. This group attacks the Ptolemaic kingdom, especially down along the Palestinian border to the Sinai Peninsula in the year 202 BC. Now you can see that line on your map. Notice map number one and the broken line which connects Sidon with Accra. And Gaza. That is the line of Antiochus III's march, along with his Macedonian allies and other mercenaries, as he attempts to invade Egypt once again at the outset of the Fifth Syrian War in 202 BC. When this war is over, approximately two years later, the Fifth Syrian War will end the effective control of Palestine by Egypt. From now on, it is Syria, it is the Seleucids who will dominate the history of Israel or Palestine uh, until the coming of the Romans in 63 BC. Now, having approached Gaza and the border fortresses of the Sinai Peninsula uh, on his initial uh, uh, march southwards, Antiochus III uh, is engaged by a Egyptian general. He's actually a Greek mercenary, and his name is Scopus. Now, Scopus had been hired by Ptolemy V to command his army, and you see the line of Scopus, the uh, <coughs> Uh, uh, dotted and uh, broken line which goes from Raphia to Gaza up to Jerusalem. He invades Palestine a year after Antiochus has come to Gaza and he recaptures southern Israel. You notice that line that I pointed out But in Jerusalem, the phrase in the text, violent ones among your people will lift themselves up, is probably a reference to Jews in Jerusalem and perhaps in the environs of Palestine who join with Antiochus III to resist 
Scopus and the invasion of Ptolemy V's Egyptian army. Now, why would the Jews uh, come to the uh, aid of uh, Syria or the Seleucids here? Well, because they had been under the thumb of the Egyptians. And, of course, uh, no, uh, no people like to be under the thumbs of any other foreign power. And so they were uh, anxious to throw it off. And consequently, uh, they throw in their hand with Antiochus III in order to, shall we say, uh, join in expelling the uh, Egyptians and Ptolemy V and his army from Palestine. However, Scopus, though he does succeed in his initial incursion, succeed in taking back the southern part of Palestine, uh, Scopus falls down, verse 14. He fails, and he fails at Panion. You'll notice the double broken and dotted line, which moves from Jerusalem up through Samaria to Panion, there on the border of the Golan Heights, a region that, of course, is famous to us even in our contemporary news. Panion, or sometimes called Paneus, is the site of the famous defeat of Scopus. He falls down uh, before the army of Antiochus III and is forced to retreat. So uh, the uh, double broken line coming from Damascus down towards Panion is Antiochus's counterattack against Scopus's invasion and progress all the way towards the Syrian uh, border that fails, and Scopus retreats to Sidon, which we'll mention when we look at verse 15. But before we go on to the 15th verse, this site, this city, Panion or Paneus, is called in the New Testament Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. And what occurs at Caesarea Philippi in the New Testament? Art, you're nodding your head. What occurs at Caesarea Philippi? You weren't nodding your head. That was a nod, that was a nod of unknowing. Caesarea Philippi. Peter's confession in Matthew 16. Yes, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So this place, which was a turning point in the history of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, is a place where a greater king is confessed because he is indeed the Son of God and King of Kings. Verse 15. Uh, Please stop me if there's something that is not clear as we proceed. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege mound, and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choices, troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. All right, now this fortified city, which is besieged by Antiochus III, notice your map, is the city of Zidon. 
Now, I mentioned that Scopus had retreated after his defeat at Panion to Sidon, where he had holed himself up. And Antiochus III followed him there and besieged the city. And uh, this well-fortified city uh, would not stand. Forces of the king of the south would not stand. What happened was, in all likelihood, Scopus was forced to surrender because Antiochus besieged Sidon and starved his army inside the city nearly to death. All right, now, Scopus withdraws, and so does the army of Ptolemy V completely from Syria and Palestine. They go back across the Sinai uh, into uh, Egypt, and the choicest of his troops, that is, Ptolemy V's troops, including his generals, Scopus, for instance, and others, make a, uh, cannot withstand or cannot make a stand against Antiochus III. <clears throat> All right, now, in 200 BC, the Seleucids, or the Syrians under Antiochus III the Great, have beaten the Egyptians or the Ptolemies and their army on at least two occasions. Once in 202 BC as they approached Gaza and once again in 200 BC as they approached Paniah. Then they besieged the remnant of that army and drove it into starvation or into surrender and uh, forced it to retreat to Egypt. Now Antiochus the Great is king not only of Seleucid Empire, but he is also king of Palestine. He controls the promised land. Verse 16. But who, he who comes against him will do as he pleases. Now, the come against him antecedent is the forces of the south in verse 15. So him in this verse is Ptolemy the fifth king of the south, and he who comes against him is Antiochus III again. And no one will be able to uh, withstand him, for he will also stay for a time in the beautiful land. Now, this is the second time that we have read this phrase in the book of Daniel. What is the beautiful land? It's Palestine. It's the land of Israel. And in chapter 8, verse 9, we see that uh, same identification. He will stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. Now again, this is a reference to the destruction of Egyptian power in the promised land, in the beautiful land. Destruction of the Ptolemies' authority and control over the promised land as was noted already above in verse 14. Now verse 17, and he will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. All right, let's begin with the phrase, the proposal of peace in that 17th verse, 
which refers to a peace treaty which was signed between Antiochus III and Ptolemy V, these two antagonists, in the year 195 B.C. Finally, after the tussle between them, the defeat of Antiochus at Raphia, the defeat of Ptolemy V at Gaza, again at Panion, uh, they finally decide it's not worth it, and they sign a peace treaty, which involves, verse 17, the daughter of women. Now, the daughter of women here is Antiochus III's daughter. Her name is Cleopatra I. There are a number of Cleopatras, not just the most famous one from uh, the history of Mark Antony, but uh, this is the first Cleopatra, the daughter of Antiochus III of Syria, and she is married to Ptolemy V. In other words, this peace treaty includes an agreement to make a marital alliance between Syria and Egypt, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And the two of them are married in 193 B.C. at Raphia. Now, you can see that location once again on your first map. It's almost as if they decided that since they were making this treaty of peace, that they would make it halfway in between so everyone didn't have to travel so far at gas at $4 a gallon. It was too expensive to go down to Egypt. Well, at any rate, the marriage occurs at 193 B.C. at Raphia, and Ptolemy V is 16 years old, and Cleopatra I is 10 years old. Well, the rest of verse 17 says that he will give, that is Antiochus, will give the daughter of women, namely his daughter Cleopatra, to ruin it. Ruin what? To ruin the peace treaty between himself and Egypt. What he wanted to do was to create a Trojan horse inside the Ptolemaic Empire. In other words, he wanted his daughter to subvert the Egyptian king and the Ptolemaic kingdom for uh, Syria, for the Seleucids. But she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. But, surprise, surprise, she falls in love with her husband and decides that she's not going to stand with her father, but she's going to stand beside her new best beloved, namely her husband, Ptolemy V. So, Antiochus's scheme is defeated by his own daughter, and consequently, verse 18, he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. All right, now you need to take map number two to follow the geography of this verse. Who will turn his face to the coastlands? This is Antiochus III again. And what are the coastlands? Well, they are the islands of the Aegean off the coast of Greece and Asia Minor. Now, there are a few of them on the left-hand side of that map. You don't see too many of them. Uh, But he, in 197 B.C., turns his attention to these islands in uh, the uh, uh, Grecian archipelago and to Thrace. You see the city or the nation of Thrace 
uh, just above the Aegean there, uh, modern-day Bulgaria. In 199 B.C., he campaigned there. But out of the blue comes a new player in the international uh, ball game, and that's the Romans. The Romans had beginning had begun to stir uh, not only in Italy but beyond the borders of Italy, uh, particularly looking at Greece and its uh, great heritage, its classic civilization. So in the second century B.C., uh, Rome had started to cast its uh, lustful glance towards the east. And when Antiochus III began to rattle his saber against the Greek islands and into Thrace, which is, of course, close to Greece itself as a nation, Rome sent him a sternly worded warning to stay out of Greece. Now, of course, Antiochus III, who controls most of Asia Minor, Syria, Mesopotamia, and everything to the border of India, is not too impressed with that threat coming from the Romans, so he attacks Greece anyway. And the Romans say... That's the end of that ball game, and they attack Antiochus III at Magnesia. You can see Magnesia in southwestern Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, just below the words Lydia on your map. In 190 B.C., they defeat Antiochus on the plains of Magnesia there, the Romans. And who is it that leads the army? It is one of the famous Scipios. Named Scipio Asiaticus. He got the name Asiaticus because he defeats Antiochus, the ruler of Asia, or Asia Minor in this case. He was a Roman general who was responsible for defeating Antiochus III at Thermopylae in 191 B.C. Yes, Antiochus had gotten his army to the pass at Thermopylae and defeats him at Magnesia the next year in 190 and at Apamea. You can see that just east of Magnesia at the uh, city of Apamea in 188 concludes a treaty with Antiochus III on behalf of the Senate of Rome. Now, what did Scipio Asiaticus specify on behalf of the Roman Senate when he met with Antiochus III at Apamea after having defeated him on the battlefield several times? He told him to clear out of Asia Minor. He told him that the Roman Senate demanded everything in Asia Minor from the Taurus Mountains west. Now, the Taurus Mountains are between Tarsus and Cilicia. If you look at the southeastern portion of modern-day Turkey on your map there, Tarsus, of course, is where Paul was born and raised. 
<clears throat> the Taurus Mountains are a mountain range between those two locations. <clears throat> and therefore, everything west of those mountains, that is, all of Asia Minor, virtually, was now ceded to Rome by the peace of Apamea and the treaty between Antiochus III and Scipio Asiaticus. Antiochus III, in 188 BC, becomes subject to Rome, particularly in the West. And in order to seal his bonded word to this agreement, concluded at Apamea in 188, he is required to send his son, Antiochus IV, to Rome as a hostage to seal the deal and to secure it. In other words, if you bring your army across those mountains again, your son is going to pay for it. And so Antiochus IV becomes a hostage in Rome, virtually a, a prisoner uh, in a, a villa or a uh, a, a, a facility there, not a jail, literally, but kept under a kind of house arrest in order to guarantee that Antiochus III won't bother Greece, he won't bother Thrace, and he won't bother Asia Minor henceforth. Verse 19. Well, what does one do when one's been virtually king of the world? And now the Romans have bearded your lion, so to speak. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. All right, this verse describes the end of Antiochus III. He turns to the east after retreating from Apamea and marches all the way to Susa. See on your map, just above the Persian Gulf, Susa, one of the major cities of the Persian Empire, and still a queen city of the Seleucid Empire in Antiochus III's day. Well, why is he marching all the way to the east, uh, bypassing his fortresses as he goes? Well, because he's on a looting or marauding expedition. For you must pay off the price of your wars. You have to pay the tab. Sooner or later, the bills come due. You can't keep raising the debt ceiling forever and think that you're going to get away if the Romans have got your IOUs and particularly if the Romans are demanding that you send so much of your tribute to them annually. So how are you going to raise the money? Well, what Antiochus III does is he goes to Susa and he attempts to loot one of the pagan temples in Susa in order to pay his debts. But the people of Susa kill him as he tries to plunder one of their sacred Shrines. He will be found no more, 187 BC. Then in his place, verse 20, 
will one arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom? Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though neither in anger nor in battle. Taking the place of Antiochus III is Seleucus IV, Philopater. What's Philopater mean? Father lover, correct. Okay, so Seleucus IV, the lover of his father Antiochus III, comes to the throne of the Seleucid Empire or Syria in 187 B.C. Now, he sends an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. What's the jewel of his kingdom? What's the beautiful land? Palestine. What's the jewel of the kingdom? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Very good. So, this oppressor is the prime minister of Syria under Seleucus IV. His name is Heliodorus. Now, Heliodorus invades Palestine and comes to Jerusalem in order to plunder the temple treasury. The year is 178 B.C. Once again, the issue with Seleucus IV is very much as it was with his father, Antiochus III, in 187 B.C., when he was killed trying to plunder a temple in Susa. What Seleucus IV does is try to plunder the temple in Jerusalem to pay the debts of the Seleucids to the Romans in particular. Keep in mind that the Romans are demanding an annual tribute. They still have Antiochus IV as a hostage in Rome. And Seleucus IV doesn't know where to get the money that he needs without taking his own billions out of, out of uh, his own bank account, of course. And, of course, no tyrant ever does that, right? So... <clears throat> Uh, he wants to find money from someplace else, so he sends Heliodorus down to invade the temple with orders to loot and plunder the gold and the riches of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the story goes that as Heliodorus was attempting to invade the temple precincts, he was prevented by a vision of angels. Now, the story is told in the second book of Maccabees, chapter 3. And this gives us an occasion to observe that uh, first and second Maccabees, although they are apocryphal works, are important for historical details, particularly about this period. And so they're worth reading for the sake of acquainting yourself with the history of what's going on in uh, in Palestine, in Israel, in Jerusalem during this period. So we don't completely dismiss them, though we don't regard them as inspired scripture as the Roman Catholics do. But nonetheless, we do regard them as useful for historical information, though that historical information must always be checked critically against other sources. <clears throat> now, obviously, this story may be apocryphal in its own right, but nonetheless, for whatever reason, Heliodorus withdrew, did not succeed in plundering the temple in Jerusalem in 178 B.C. 
Back to verse 20. Within a few days, he will be shattered. Now, the he is once again Seleucus IV. And the phrase, a few days, is a a comparative uh, description of his reign in comparison with his father's. Now, remember, his father Antiochus III reigned a long time, 37 years in all. Seleucus IV only reigns 12 years, just one-third of the reign of his father. And so that's the reason for the phrase, a few days. He will be shattered. Now, this is referring to the death of Seleucus IV in 175 B.C. His death is shrouded in a little bit of controversy and mystery. It is likely that he was assassinated and assassinated by Heliodorus, his former prime minister, who, when he returned from Jerusalem, plotted a coup d'etat. That is an attempt to uh, overcome Seleucus and either himself become king of Syria and the Seleucid Empire or... give that throne to Antiochus IV, who had been held in hostage in Rome, but was released at the petition of Seleucus IV, his brother. Now, why would Seleucus IV ask that his brother be released? Well, because Seleucus IV was going to give his son Demetrius to the Romans, in exchange for allowing his brother Antiochus IV to come home. When Heliodorus heard that Antiochus IV was being released from the Roman prison, he attempts a coup to take over the government. And as I said, whether he was doing this for himself, namely he was going to promote himself to become king of Syria, or whether he was laying the groundwork for Antiochus IV coming home and then turning over the kingdom to him, to him uh, it is likely that he assassinated Seleucus IV in order to get him out of the way. Now, there will be a, a greater description of this uh, in verse uh, 21. In his place, that is, in the place of Seleucus IV, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Who is the despicable person? Well, the despicable person is Antiochus IV, who has been released from prison in Rome in exchange for his nephew, for the son of Seleucus IV, namely Demetrius. Now, this is the second time that we've met Antiochus IV in the book of Daniel. In chapter 8, verses 9 to 12, and again in verses 23 to 26, we have met Antiochus previously. Now, notice that that uh, verse says that he will uh, seize the kingdom by intrigue. As Antiochus made his way back to Syria after being released from prison in Rome, he visited Greece and then Asia Minor, particularly Pergamum, 
And as he moved, he ingratiated himself all along the way. That is, he made himself a very welcome person to the Greek nobility and to the king of Pergamum. And as he goes across Asia Minor and comes to the border of Syria itself, he endears himself to the Syrian people. In other words, he's coming as a kind of benevolent dictator or benevolent uh, leader. So when he arrives <coughs> arrives in, in Antioch, <coughs> he uh, <coughs> takes over the throne because his brother Seleucus IV has already been removed, uh, probably by assassination. And you'll notice this verse says that the honor of kingship has not been conferred on him. In other words, this throne really wasn't his. It belonged to Seleucus IV, and after Seleucus IV, it belonged to his son Demetrius. But nonetheless, Antiochus IV seizes it. He takes it. Whether it's a result of the opportunism of Heliodorus or, or, or whether he intended all the way along the road back from Rome as he ingratiates himself and prepares the way, uh, you know, he's preparing to take this throne if he has to by force when he arrives. Uh, nonetheless, uh, when he uh, comes to, uh, when he comes to uh, Antioch in 175 BC, he is enthroned as the next king of Syria and the Seleucid Empire. It was a time of tranquility, relatively speaking. That is, there weren't any uh, great wars or conflicts going on at this time when Antiochus IV uh, makes his entrance upon the scene as king of Syria and Seleucia. Now, the next three verses, 22 through 24, are very difficult in that there is a hodgepodge of disagreement amongst commentators on what these verses mean. Uh, I am going to make an exegetical decision based upon what follows clearly in verse 25 and following. In verse 25, we definitely have arrived at the Sixth Syrian War, 170 B.C. So I am taking these three verses, 22 to 24, as setting the stage or giving the preparation to that Sixth Syrian War, which will be detailed in verse 25 and following. All right, verse 22. And the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. Now, the hymn here in this verse is not difficult to ascertain. It's Antiochus IV, because he's the immediate antecedent of this section. It's the advancement of, of Antiochus IV to his throne, and beyond that, to the overflowing forces which are going to be flooded away before him. Well, these overflowing forces which are going to kind of flood away as he moves against them, I believe, are the forces of the Ptolemies and the Egyptians at the onset of the Sixth Syrian War in 170 B.C. I'll give details when we come to verse 75, but I think that's what's being anticipated here in verse 22, namely the outbreak of the Sixth Syrian War as Antiochus IV attacks 
the, the Ptolemies in Egypt. Now, who is the prince of the covenant? Now, when we say the covenant, we're obviously thinking about what? What nation? Israel. Israel, correct. So, this has something to do with Israel. Now, who would the prince of the covenant be at this time, the time of Antiochus IV? There's no ruler in Israel because the Seleucids control Israel. So, who is the prince of the covenant? No, it's not Antiochus IV. It's not a reference to the king who rules over Palestine at this time. It's referring to somebody in Jerusalem. Somebody who is in charge, so to speak, of the covenant. If it's not a king, who's next? The judges. The judges? Judges? Yeah. No. Not the judges? Art? Either Ezra or Nehemiah? No, they're long dead. Ezra and Nehemiah are 455, 433. Long before this. If it's not a king? High priest. High priest, exactly. Okay, so the prince of the covenant is the high priest in Jerusalem at this time. And who is it? It's a fellow named Onias III. All right, now this brings a side story into this prophecy, namely the furious strife over the high priesthood in Jerusalem from the time of Antiochus IV on down. Now, the high priest in Jerusalem before 172 B.C. was Onias III. But in 171 B.C., he is assassinated by his brother. His brother is a fellow named Menelaus. Ominous Greek name for a Jew. But at any rate... Menelaus had purchased the high priesthood from Antiochus IV in 172 B.C. He had bought the high priesthood. Yes, he had gone up to Antioch and bribed Antiochus to give him the high priesthood. Antiochus, of course, was only too happy to have his own man in Jerusalem, so to speak, a puppet that he could control. And so he gave Menelaus the high priesthood. Menelaus went back to Jerusalem and proceeded to assassinate his brother Onias III and get him out of the way so he could be high priest with Antiochus's blessing. And we're not done yet. It's a mess. But the politicization of the high priesthood in Jerusalem as a result of Antiochus's involvement as a result of, shall we say, the synagogue or the temple going to the state hmm? and saying, you know, I'll pay you to let me be the head of the church or the head of the synagogue or the head of the temple or the head of whatever. And, of course, it's not the first time in church history that this has happened. 
And it's not even the first time in Jewish history that it's happened. When the church or those that are supposed to be dealing with the sacred treasures of God and his covenant begin to decide that they can sell it to the highest bidder in the, church, in the political empire, in the political realms, then corruption has begun in the house of God. And it's time to clean the Augean stables. All right, so, verse 23. And after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. Now, this alliance, if my interpretation is correct, that all of this is preparing for the details of the Sixth Syrian War in verse 25. This is an alliance, which is, this alliance is a reference to that marriage between Cleopatra I and Ptolemy V in 195-193 BC. Keep in mind, Cleopatra I is Antiochus IV's sister. He will practice deception. He, being Antiochus IV, he will march on Egypt through Ptolemaic territory, that is, southern Syria and Palestine, in 170 B.C. And if you take your third map, you can see the route of his march. And it's labeled 170 B.C. as he moves from Tyre down the coast of Palestine to Gaza, all the way to Pelusium, and ultimately to Memphis and Alexandria. There is the route of... Uh, his uh, uh, deception in which he pretends to honor the treaty between Ptolemy V and his father Antiochus III. But in fact, he deceived everybody and sets out to uh, launch the Sixth Syrian War and march down the coast of Palestine in 170 B.C. Verse 24. In a time of tranquility, remember, there's relative peace between Syria and Egypt. He will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. And he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will accomplish what his fathers never did. Antiochus IV will do what no Seleucid king had ever done. He will invade and secure Egypt for a time. None of his fathers had ever been able to penetrate or secure Egypt until Antiochus IV. Notice, he will devise schemes against strongholds. That is, he will take the fortress, the border fortresses of the strongholds of the Ptolemies, the Egyptians, by surprise. As he marched down the coast and past Gaza and past Pelusium and so on. Keep in mind that even though they were at peace, they maintained border garrisons in order to protect their frontiers. Antiochus IV uh, schemes to overrun those uh, in a time of tranquility or apparent Peace, but only for a time. 
In other words, his campaign to succeed where his fathers had failed will last only for a time. For Antiochus IV will face his own Waterloo in Egypt during the Sixth Syrian War at 168 when the Romans stick their nose into the politics of Egypt and Syria. And after your break, we'll come back and tell the rest of the story. Do you have any questions to this point up to verse uh, 25? Art? So you're saying that the context and the events reveal that the he in verse 23 is not the same as the he in verse 24. Correct. Uh, my argument is that the alternative interpretations of the meaning of these three verses don't feed into what comes in verse 25. They, in fact, detract from the flow of what I think is a kind of Semitic duplication or Semitic parallelism. In other words, the prophecy has symmetrical or parallel uh, relationships. And what happens is verse 25 becomes more detailed exegetically of verses 22, 23, and 24. Now, uh, there are those that agree with me in this point, but there are others who disagree with me. As I said, this is a hodgepodge of 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 evaluation when you take a look at the commentaries on these three verses. But I'm making my decision based upon the contextual sequence of the section itself. It comes to its climax in the outbreak of the details of the Sixth Syrian War in verse 25, and therefore I think 22 to 24 are preparatory to that. Once again, you're going to keep your map number three beside you. And as I've intimated already, verse 25 is a meticulous or detailed description of the Sixth Syrian War. And he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand for schemes will be devised against him. Now, the king of the south here is Ptolemy VI. Philomater. Philomator, actually. Better pronunciation. Uh, He had Philopater before. We have Philomator here. So this means mother lover. Exactly. He is the son of Ptolemy V and Cleopatra I. His mother will co-rule. She will be co-regent with him after her husband dies, that is, Ptolemy V, in 180 B.C. And she will die in 176 B.C. Ptolemy VI will marry his sister, Cleopatra II, in 175-74 B.C. And as if this isn't getting complicated enough, together with her younger brother, Ptolemy VIII, Fiscone, 
will serve as co-regent of all Egypt. So we're going to have actually three rulers of Egypt during this sixth Syrian war. Three co-regents. Ptolemy the sixth, Ptolemy the eighth, and Cleopatra the second, Ptolemy the sixth sister wife. Now, the uh, nickname Physcon for Ptolemy the eighth, which is in your outline. Physcon in Greek means pot-bellied or less complementarily fatso. Ptolemy the eighth fatso. The three of these then become the rulers of Egypt from 174 on down. And so they are in the background of this uh, political situation, military and political situation that develops as a result of Antiochus IV's uh, progress towards invading Egypt. Now, he will not stand. Verse 25, who will not stand? Ptolemy VI will not stand. He will be defeated. If you'll notice your map, the crossed swords, the location of Pelusium, and the little note there on the map, Ptolemy VI defeated in 170 B.C. Antiochus IV had marched down the coast of Palestine, you notice that arrow again coming along the coast labeled 170 B.C. and clashed with the army of Ptolemy VI at Pelusium and defeated the Egyptians. So Ptolemy VI did not stand. Now Ptolemy VI was not killed in that battle. Uh, nonetheless, he was captured And why? Because schemes were devised against him. Now, these schemes which were devised is a reference to his own advisors. That is, the advisors of Ptolemy VI, who encouraged him to invade Syria in this same year, 170 B.C. So, in fact, he was preparing to take his army into Syria, actually into Palestine and then into Syria eventually, but Antiochus IV beat him to the punch and met him at the border of Egypt at Pelusium and defeated him. Now, the reason that Ptolemy VI advisors encouraged him to invade Syria is that they were tired of uh, not controlling not only Palestine, but a part of southern Syria, which they had controlled before Antiochus III had captured it. All right, verse 26. And those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. Now that word overflow should remind you of verse 22, the overflowing forces, which is another reason that I think that verse 22 is contributing to this description of the Sixth Syrian War. Those who eat his choice food that is, the choice food of Ptolemy VI, king of Egypt, are once again his counselors and advisors. 
Now, destroy is too strong. Uh, the marginal translation here, they will break him, is a better uh, rendering of the uh, Hebrew term here. Because Ptolemy VI is captured by Antiochus IV. And you will notice that the arrow from Pelusium goes down to Memphis on your map. Now, this is an indication that when Ptolemy VI was defeated at Pelusium and captured by Antiochus IV, Antiochus IV took him to Memphis and installed him as king of eastern Egypt, king in Memphis. Now, remember, we've got three rulers. So where is Ptolemy VIII and where is Ptolemy VI's sister wife, Cleopatra II? They are in Alexandria. So Antiochus IV has his puppet, namely Ptolemy VI, without his wife, in Memphis after the defeat at Pelusium. But you've still got two other Egyptians ruling Western Egypt in Alexandria. You've got Ptolemy VIII and Cleopatra II. Well, what about that phrase, many will fall down slain? That's a reference to the great number of Egyptians that were killed at the Battle of Pelusium in 170 by the army of Antiochus IV. As for both kings, verse 27, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. All right, now notice, the heart of this verse is they will be intent on evil and speak lies to each other at the same table. This is the intrigue between Antiochus IV and Ptolemy VI. Now, obviously, when Antiochus IV defeats Ptolemy VI and captures him following the battle at Pelusium and then installs him as king in Memphis, Antiochus IV is using Ptolemy VI. He's using him for his own political purposes. Now, Ptolemy VI is happy to be alive, of course. And if he can be king in Memphis, it's better than being king in a prison, right? King of the cockroaches or whatever. So it's better to be alive and on a throne in Memphis, even if you're under the thumb of Antiochus IV, this Syrian foreign ruler, than dead or in jail. So Ptolemy VI says... Yeah, two can play this game. You're happy to use me? I'm not going to tell you, but I'm happy to use you too. After all, I get to be king in Memphis. So, both of them are telling lies to one another. For all Antiochus IV wants is somebody that he can use to advance his own agenda through the rest of Egypt, because, of course, he knows that he wants Alexandria too, eventually. But he doesn't want to have to worry about his rear guard. So if he's got his own guy sitting down there in Memphis and his army's going on to Alexandria, okay, he is protected at the rear. And Ptolemy VI said, oh, this is fine and dandy. You see, you know, I'll just bide my time and see what happens here. 
All right, so both of them are are using one another. They're contriving agendas of their own, hidden and not so hidden. Well, from your map, you will notice that from Memphis, Antiochus IV goes on to Alexandria and besieges it. Now, as he is laying siege to Alexandria, and inside Alexandria is Ptolemy VIII and Cleopatra II, ruling that city and the rest of western Egypt, he gets news from back home. A courier comes with a message to Antiochus IV that there is rebellion brewing in Antioch. And so he retreats in 169 B.C. Now you notice the double arrows on the same line, that is arrows going south and arrows going north. That's the line of retreat from Alexandria that Antiochus follows as he goes back to Antioch in 169 and lifts the siege of Alexandria. Now that brings us back to this word, this phrase in verse 27, it will not succeed. What will not succeed? His plan to use Ptolemy VI against his brother and sister, Ptolemy VIII and Cleopatra II. For when Antiochus IV withdraws from Egypt, lifts the siege of Alexandria and marches back to Antioch in 169 B.C., what does Ptolemy VI do? He goes to Alexandria, reconciles with his brother and sister wife, and the three of them once again become the rulers of all of Egypt. So much for Antiochus IV. All right, so by the time we're done with verse 27, what has happened is that Egypt is now in the same place under the three co-regents as it was before the Sixth Syrian War broke out in 170 B.C., Verse 28, then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant and he will take action and then return to his own land. All right, who's returning to his land? This is Antiochus IV, 169 B.C. Notice the line going north from Gaza takes a little detour to the east to Jerusalem. The Holy Covenant, of course, are the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem. What action does he take? Verse 28, he will take action. What action does he take before he returns to his own land? He will plunder the temple of Jerusalem. Antiochus IV will enter the temple in 169 B.C. and plunder the treasures on his return from Egypt to Antioch to put down the unrest or the potential rebellion that's brewing in his homeland. Verse 29, at the appointed time he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. All right, now on your map number three, you'll notice we have another arrow. It's an arrow just beside that first arrow. That first arrow is along the coast. The second arrow is a little further inland, but you'll notice that it is another southward leading arrow and is labeled Antiochus IV in 168 B.C., He will return into the south, 
Antiochus IV returns to Egypt in 168 B.C. and attacks Alexandria. Notice that arrow goes by way of Memphis and then up to Alexandria, and it encircles Alexandria with a kind of uh, 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 siege-like diagram. But, verse 28, I'm sorry, verse 29, it will not turn out the way it did before. When he came to Egypt the first time, after the Battle of Pelusium, he was ostensibly the ruler of Egypt, even to the point of laying siege to Alexandria. And had he not been called home, he probably would have starved the city into submission and conquered all of Egypt. Okay? The fact that he had to leave in order to put down the trouble back in Syria didn't stop his overall game plan. So he comes back in 168 to finish what he had started. But it's not going to turn out the way it did before. His plan to control all of Egypt will fail. Why? Verse 30, for ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. All right, now the key here are the ships of Kittim. Who are they? They are the Romans. And now, you see, we have the portent of the fourth monarchy in the book of Daniel from chapter 2 and chapter 7. All right, now, the ships of Kittim come against him. What did they do? The Romans, who had, as I said before, been looking eastward, particularly to Greece and to Asia Minor from a little before 200 B.C., and later, we saw the Peace of Apamea at, one, at 188. The Romans are taking an increasing interest in the East, including Egypt. And in fact, Egypt is interested in Rome's help to get these Syrians off their back. So, in 168 BC, the Senate sends an embassy on behalf of the Roman Senate to Egypt. And the leader of this embassy is a man named Caius Popilius Linus. And he is sent by the Roman Senate to to confront Antiochus IV in Alexandria on your map 168 BC. How does he confront him? It's one of the most famous anecdotes in all of ancient history. Popilius Linus delivers an order from the Roman Senate, a consultum senatum. And that order instructs Antiochus IV to abandon the siege of Alexandria, which he has installed on his return, and withdraw completely from Egypt. Not just withdraw from Alexandria, but get thee out of Memphis as well. Get thee over the Sinai Peninsula, and don't thee ever come across that border again, thus saith the Roman Senate. Well, Antiochus, having heard this order from Popilius Linus, says, I think I need time to talk this over with my advisors. 
Now, Popilius Lenus happened to have a little stick in his hand. And as Antiochus IV is uh, conjuring this uh, response and even giving his response, Lenus walks around Antiochus IV drawing a circle in the sand as he goes. And he says, Antiochus, you will answer this order from the Roman Senate before you step over the line. And Antiochus answered before he crossed over the line. He didn't dare cross over the line until he did answer. And the answer he gave was, oh, great poobah of Rome, I withdraw. I withdraw. Now, the region of Alexandria where this confrontation occurred was a little suburb called Eleusis. And the day of Eleusis, which is the 1st of July, 168 B.C., is still observed. It is remembered as the day when the Egyptians were freed from the Syrians. And Antiochus IV was forced to withdraw under the threat of Rome. But now, who controls Egypt? Ah, yes. Egypt is now controlled by Rome. Enter Rome, not only in Greece, about 200, 190 B.C., but now enter Rome in Egypt, 168 B.C., and it's only going to be a 100 more years before Rome enters Palestine, 63 B.C. Rome is flexing its iron muscle and its iron standard to trample the nations of the world. Now, granted, there's no bloodshed here in Alexandria in 168, and that's a mercy in itself. But nonetheless, the fourth monarchy is on the door and going to dominate the history of the Near East, including the history of Palestine, Judea, and Jerusalem. All right, now the rest of uh, verse 30. He will become enraged at the Holy Covenant. Antiochus IV is going to take out his frustration on Jerusalem and the people of Israel, the Holy Covenant. Who are those who forsake the Holy Covenant in verse 30? Well, we already know one of them. That's Menelaus, who had purchased a high priesthood four years before from Antiochus IV. Menelaus not only perverts the priesthood by buying it, but he also is part of a movement in Judaism to bring in a Hellenistic culture, a Hellenistic uh, ethos. He is a Hellenistic Jew. And so he sells out his Judaism to a Hellenistic ideal, philosophy, worldview. Now, because he's done that, he incurs the wrath of those who are traditionally Jewish, Semitic Jews, 
like fitter on the roof, tradition Jews. Okay? Those who want the old ways. Now, he is neither a priest because he buys the priesthood, nor is he a member of the line of the priesthood, the Zadokite uh, descendants. And because he is not, that brings more resistance to him. And consequently, Menelaus, in assassinating Onias III, in promoting Hellenistic Judaism, in bringing in the Hellenistic culture into Jerusalem and even into the temple courts in Jerusalem, Menelaus begins to build up hostility and and frustration and enmity amongst the Jewish people, and the result is going to be a civil war, a civil war in Palestine. Verse 31, And forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Now, the sanctuary here is obviously the temple. And this is a reference to 167 B.C. When Antiochus IV, and you'll notice from your uh, fourth map, no, I'm sorry, from your third map, your third map, you have a, a little box that it says, Apollonius the Mysarch, 167 B.C. Antiochus IV, in that year 167 B.C., sends Apollonius, the commander of one of his legions, to attack Jerusalem on the Sabbath day with 22,000 soldiers. Now, why does Apollonius attack Jerusalem on the Sabbath day? No. Art? Show contempt for the the people. He's a strategist. Why does he attack on the Sabbath day? Because they're arrest. Because they won't fight. He knows they won't fight. They won't fight on the Sabbath. Therefore, he murders virtually every male in the city of Jerusalem on that day. He captures the women and children and sells them into slavery. He reduces the city and then instills on Antiochus's orders the following death sentence provisions. Anyone possessing a copy of the Hebrew scriptures will be put to death. Anyone practicing circumcision will be put to death. City of San Francisco is going to vote on whether you're going to be allowed to circumcise your children. Going to be on the ballot in November. Are they taking a page out of Antiochus IV's book? Hmm, interesting, isn't it? Anyone offering sacrifices which are not offered to the Greek gods will be put to death. Anyone observing the Jewish feast days will be put to death, etc., etc., etc. What Antiochus IV seeks to do is to obliterate Judaism and to substitute in its place Hellenism. And you can find that story, this story of the brutalization of Jerusalem in 167 in 1 Maccabees chapter 1. It's a very ugly chapter, but it is historically 
accurate. This is what these anti-Semites did. This is how much they detested the Jews and were determined to force them to practice their own religion. Now, doing away with the regular uh, sacrifice there in verse 31 is uh, stopping the uh, offerings at the temple. And this is the desecration of the temple in Jerusalem, which has been mentioned previously in Daniel 8, verse 11. And then they were set up the abomination of desolation, which is probably the altar to Zeus Olympus, erected on December 6th, 167 B.C. And then on that altar, they allegedly sacrificed pigs ten days later on December 16th, 167 B.C. And by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. All right, now it brings us to map number four. Those who act wickedly are the pro-Antiochus IV Jews. They are the apostate Jews. They are the Hellenistic Jews They are the party of the high priest Menelaus. But who will take action? The Maccabees. And on your fourth map, you will notice on the left-hand side, with a star, the little village of Modin. Modin. This is the village of Matthias, the father and priest the father of the Maccabees, and the priest of Modin. He is a priest to the Lord God in that city. And when a fellow Jew is about to offer a sacrifice to Zeus on the altar in that city at Modin, Matthias kills him and tears down the altar. Now, obviously, he knows that having killed this priest, who is a Hellenistic appointee of the party of Menelaus and of Antiochus IV, that his life is not worth a plug nickel, and so he flees to the mountains with his five sons. His five sons, Judas, who will be called Judas Maccabeus or Judas the Hammer, John, Simon, Eleazar, and Jonathan. A year later, Mattathias will die of old age, 166 B.C., And before he dies, he will appoint his son Judas as the leader of this movement, the Maccabean Revolt. Verse 33. And those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Who will fall by the sword? The Maccabees themselves will fall by the sword. All five sons will die a violent death. Eleazar will die in battle in 162 B.C. Judas Maccabeus will die in battle in 161 B.C. John will be killed or assassinated in 161-59 B.C. Jonathan will be assassinated in 143 B.C. And the last of the brothers... Simon, who will continue the line of the so-called Hesmonean dynasty, 
that is, the descendants of the Maccabees called the Hesmoneans or the godly. Uh, they will be priests and rulers from 143 to about 63 B.C. when Pompey conquers Palestine for Rome. Simon will be assassinated in 135 B.C. Now that verse 33 says at the end of it, for many days. This civil war, the Maccabean Revolt, lasted for three years. From 167, the uh, execution of the priest at Modin, to 164, when Judas Maccabeus captured Jerusalem, actually recaptured Jerusalem, and rededicated the temple and the altar on the temple on December 16, 164. That event we know as Hanukkah today. It is mentioned once in the New Testament, described in John chapter 10, verse 22, as the feast of dedication and is the context in which Jesus completes his Good Shepherd discourse. Now, this conflict between the Maccabees and the Seleucids is quite remarkable in its daring. In some ways, the Maccabees are the originators of a kind of guerrilla warfare. Because one of the ways in which they beat the larger forces of the Syrian army is by uh, hit and miss, uh, you know, hit and run, I should say, tactics, uh, laying in wait, uh, catching them by surprise. Uh, There was an amazing kind of uh, logistical campaign in which they drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem and out of Palestine for a short time and were able to restore the leadership of uh, of uh, promised land to uh, a, uh, shall we say, more or less faithful uh, Jewish leadership. Uh, the Romans and the Syrians opposed that. I should say the Syrians first and then the Romans. The Syrians always tried to take it back, and they eventually did uh, break them uh, towards the end of the second century, between 130 and 100 B.C., but uh, nonetheless, this is a, uh, a glorious uh, stage of uh, Jewish history and something that is remembered uh, each December by the Jewish community when they celebrate Hanukkah to recall the rededication of the temple under Judas Maccabeus. Now, in your outline, you have the words of uh, one of the most famous uh, choruses from one of Handel's lesser-known oratorios, Namely, Oratorio Judas Maccabeus. This is the famous Hallelujah, Amen chorus. And I'm going to ask Mary to play it through the loudspeakers so that you can hear it. This is the uh, final chorus of George Friedrich Handel's Oratorio Judas Maccabeus, in which in song he tells a story of the heroism of Judas Maccabeus. And the chorus at the end sings the Hallelujah, Amen because of the rededication and cleansing of the temple. So we can say amen too. Hallelujah, amen with Israel of old. That leaves verses 34 and 35. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help. And many will join with them in hypocrisy. And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. Because it is still to come. 
at the appointed time. This probably refers to the help uh, in verse 34 that the Maccabees gave to the nation of Israel, or more broadly, the help that God in his providence brought to the Maccabean revolt in order to purify the temple and throw off, at least for a time, the yoke of a foreign power, foreign ruler. That brings us to the end of the Sixth Syrian War. In verse 35, the Maccabean revolt breaks the power of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and if his nickname Epimenes, Madman, is any indication, he died in 164 B.C. Some say from tuberculosis, others say from a fit of insanity, but at any rate, Antiochus IV is removed from the scene, and now the next major player in the history of the Promised Land will be the Roman Empire. And into the Roman Empire will come that fifth monarchy, that supernatural kingdom, that kingdom cut out without hands. And that kingdom will grind the Roman Empire as it will grind the remnants of the Greek Empire as it will grind the remnants of the Persian and the Babylonian empires. It will grind the kingdoms of this world under its almighty feet, for it is a kingdom which endures forever. The fifth monarchy on the brink of its manifestation, its revelation, its incarnation in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, verse 36 moves on, as does chapter 12, and we will address those verses and the imagery of that section in our last uh, uh, series, our last session uh, next week at 7 o'clock. Do you have any questions about anything here this evening? Terry? John 10.22. Rob? It seems that uh, through all this terrible ending here that we've come to, uh, maybe it set the stage for Herod's temple during the time of Jesus, uh, uh, meaning that what the Greeks had done was so bad that it set the stage for the Romans to build the temple. I'm just asking. Well, uh, actually, the Romans aren't building the temple. Herod's building the temple... Uh, uh, he's going to become the governor of Judea, the king of Judea, because of his uh, relationship or his friendship with the Romans. He, in fact, uh, goes to Rome to save his own life before he returns to Palestine, invades Palestine from the west. Um, but uh, Herod is an Idumean. He's not a native Jew. Uh, he's from Nabatea, which is south of the Dead Sea. So he's a foreigner. He's an alien in his own right. Uh, What he does is he doesn't rebuild a destroyed temple because the temple is not destroyed. Even by Antiochus IV, Judas Maccabeus doesn't have to rebuild a destroyed temple. It's there. But what Herod does is he throws a political sop to the Jews. He expands that temple. He expands it to a dimension and glory that it never had uh, even in the days of Solomon, really. And uh, though that work was never finished, it was always in the state of, of uh, construction. It was always under construction. Uh, it was never really completed. 
Uh, the Romans destroy it finally once and for all in 70 A.D. But nonetheless, Herod is a political figure. He is not thinking of the religion of the Jews for any other than political purposes. And so he gives them this glorious temple as a way of pacifying them and ingratiating himself to them. Yes, Rome is on the, uh, is on the doorstep here. Uh, Herod is coming. Uh, <clears throat> Christ himself is on the doorstep. Uh, the fifth monarchy is imminent as we move towards the first century. A.D. All right, then, Lord willing, see you next week for the Dernier class.